Well, this is part three of chapter nine on optimism from the beginning of infinity. Now I'm recording this right during the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. It was launched on July 16. Today is July 17. Uh, they don't get to the moon until July 20th. Um, so hopefully at least one of these episodes will be out on or around July 20th. I was just listening to the great politician, Daniel Hannan. I often don't preface any politician's name with great, but I think as far as living statesmen go, Daniel Hannan is as good as we have right now. And he's a great defender of freedom and optimism. And he was just speaking to Ben Shapiro. I don't listen to Ben Shapiro very often, but Ben Shapiro has an interview series. And during his most recent interview, he interviewed Daniel Hannan. So it was a great conversation. And one thing, one thing that Hannan was talking about was how American politicians really need to cheer up. <laughs> Kennedy got to the moon and helped inspire a generation of people to come with him to come with him on the intellectual journey that was preparations for the moon because of optimism. Now, where is that optimism today? People seem to continually complain about how bad the economy is, though it's better than ever, how bad the job rate is, though more people are employed than ever. By almost every metric, it doesn't matter what country you're in, things are getting better unless you're in North Korea. Certainly in America, things are getting better. In Great Britain, things are getting better. In Australia, things are getting better. Canada, things are getting better. Now, there are some places where things might be getting a little worse, but those are places where they've enacted pessimistic policies. And so we just need optimism. We need, we need to have a stance of more freedom rather than less. We need to really be looking at the future and how what the potential of people are and what the potential of people is rather than all the damage that people are doing all the time. And so because we think that people are inherently bad and causing all this damage, we tend to enact policies. We tend to cause society to move in ways which slows down progress or which regards people with suspicion in some way. And this is not good. This is not good for optimism. So let me get into part three. So while we're talking about politicians, leaders, statesmen, let me return to the section, therefore, in The Beginning of Infinity, Chapter 9, that is summarising Popper's political philosophy, and in particular, his philosophy of democracy. So I might repeat a little bit of what I said in the previous episode, but I think it's important because if we're going to be led in any direction at the moment, the way in which society is organised, it is such that a whole bunch of resources are controlled by a small group of people in the form of governments. And many of these politicians, many of these leaders are pessimists. So given that circumstance and given that we will always make errors in electing people and those people might enact bad policies, what therefore should the stance be with respect to what democracy is? Well, from the, be well, from the beginning of infinity, let me read. Systems of government are to be judged not for their prophetic ability to choose and install good leaders and policies, but for their ability to remove bad ones that are already there. That entire stance is fallibilism in action. It assumes that rulers and policies are always going to be flawed. The problems are inevitable, but it also assumes that improving upon them is possible. Problems are soluble. The ideal towards which this is working is not that nothing unexpected will go wrong, but that when it does, it will be an opportunity for further progress. Now, 
on on this, I'll just pause here. This is my, my um, reflection on this. On this topic of fallibilism in our individual lives, the um, the magician uh, Pendulet of of Pen and Teller fame. He's a he's a famous libertarian. He's given some excellent speeches over the years about um, what libertarianism is about, and and really for him um, and and for me and for for I think Popper as well, it's about systems of government that tend to move away from violence where possible that tend to avoid coercion and force. And so what Penn Jillette talks about is, what would he use a gun for? And he says he's, he'd use a gun to stop a murder. And he'd use a gun to stop rape. He'd use a gun to defend his country from violent invasion. But then he asks, would I use a gun to build a library? And he has a personal reflection in these speeches about how important public libraries are and how important they personally were to him. He says he learned more at his public library than perhaps anywhere else as a child growing up. But he wonders what would he do in order to build a public library? Well, he says that he personally he would, he would beg people, he would try and persuade them, he'd plea hard and gather funds together if he could. He would maybe even bend the truth a little in order to get those donations. He'd really, really want libraries to be built, but he simply wouldn't use a gun to do it. In other words, he's optimistic that people would be open to persuasion, that the knowledge he has about the possibility of accomplishing projects without coercion could be learned by others, and they would think like him eventually after enough persuasion. Many see this as too hard an ask. It's, it's, it's rare to encounter it's rare to encounter other genuine libertarians like this, or genuine capitalists, or genuine uh, freedom lovers, people who are genuine optimists in this sense, especially about people. So they think that some coercion, some force, some violence, some amount of bringing guns to the table is necessary in order to do good public works, because they have this Thomas Hobbesian view about people, that people are just animals, barely controlled by the state, and that we don't want to help each other. I think this is completely and utterly false. We do. And we do want public libraries, for example. But the alternative view is that only, only force in the form of the state or in the form of government can do things like build libraries, or roads, or social welfare, or any of a large list of things that, that people think that only governments are able to do and that private industry can never do. Those people are pessimists about the possibility of non-violence and what reason and knowledge can accomplish. I think I've mentioned before Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, the science communicator in America, he uh, famously talked about how only NASA, you know, I'm a great lover of NASA, but Neil deGrasse Tyson articulated what I think many people thought, which is that only NASA could ever do space exploration. Only the apparatus of a state with that amount of money could ever hope to explore space. And so that's why we need to fund NASA more and more. This was just prior to Elon Musk setting up SpaceX. And I think it was a little bit after um, Richard Branson began Virgin Galactic. Private industry is going into space. It would have been better had NASA taken, had NASA been able to accomplish what it did without coercion. It did so, that, that, that's happened. And it continues to happen. 
But I suppose of all the things that we're going to steal money for, um, the exploration of space is better than some things. Okay, this is a spectrum of bad things to steal for. But some people think it can't be done. Some people think that people are just bad or that um, although they would give money in order to explore space, they would give money in order to help out the poor or they would give money in order to build a library. The overwhelming majority of people wouldn't and so this is why we need force. Um, that, in other words, they think people are not kind, not good, uh, not generous. Uh, a personal anecdote, um, I don't like these as a rule, they, they stink of argument from authority but um, some people I admit aren't quite there yet simply appreciating the validity of an argument on its own merits. But rather like when someone defends freedom or criticises taxation or criticises government and then gets accused of being a privileged rich person, um, I've never been particularly wealthy, when one supports optimism, not just about the future but about people, one is accused of having rose-coloured glasses, that one needs to get out of their ivory tower or some such. Um, so I'll give you a little a, a taste of my so-called ivory tower. Um, straight after high school I went to university, but throughout my entire time at university I paid my own way, I paid my university fees by working as a security guard and so my days were quite long. I'd, I'd start early in the morning, go off to lectures at university doing physics and then straight after university I'd go off to this very large shopping centre in a suburb called Bankstown in the western part of Sydney and I would um, and I would patrol. I would patrol the centre along with a large number of other guards out at that shopping centre. I wasn't ever dealing with murderers, it never got quite that bad, but the shopping centre was, and it remains to this day, one of the largest in Australia, in fact probably one of the largest in the world. And the area that, it, that it's in, Bankstown, back then, back in the late 90s, the early 2000s, was a pretty rough area. On Thursday nights, for example, um, in Australia, there's a tradition of Thursday night shopping. I don't know why, but anyway, on Thursday nights, we'd have anything up to 15 uh, security guards. The security guard, by the way, is a, a mall cop for an American. Um, we'd have up to 15 of them patrolling the centre. And for various reasons, I, I don't need to go into the 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 socio-economic issues right now, but there would be brawls at this centre on Thursday night, you know, mini riots, um, especially on Thursday nights. There would be shop stealers, there would be assaults. It was a very busy place for a mall cop or a security guard to do work. There's, there was something like 300 different shops in this centre, some big, some small, but it, there was a lot of action going on quite often. Other times it was quiet, but my point is, no one ever phoned our security number, just like no one ever calls emergency services, to say they, they have a wonderful person with them that they'd like to report to you. No, you're always being called to the most terrible situations with nasty people doing bad things. And this was almost every shift. Now, full-time police officers aside, I think I have a reasonable idea, as reasonable an idea as anyone does, of how bad people can be of how bad things can get. But the conclusion I drew after this was a good six years of working in this particular role, dealing with these great spectrum of people, is that I don't really think people are bad. I think the reason people act badly is because of bad ideas, the, the things that they've learned, and those can be changed. So I, I nonetheless, nonetheless, my encounters with the reality of certain bad people leads 
many, I think, to develop a certain kind of compassion and understanding. But a lack of optimism about people on an individual level always calls out for authoritarianism. It says that I'm one of the good people, one of the smart ones. The others, however, they're the ones that can't be trusted. They need to be controlled. And that impulse breeds violence. So when it comes to doing things the government does by force, I really do think, um, and this again, this is um, argument from personal experience, nevertheless, um, I really do think that the vast majority of people, when they have the means, will indeed help each other out in the way the libertarians think. And I agree with Pendulette, we don't need guns to build libraries. This is not an ivory tower type rose colored rose-tinted glass view of reality. I know how bad people can be, but the overwhelming majority of people are good people who like to live in a kind and compassionate society. And it doesn't matter if there's a small minority of people who are bad. Okay, so back to the book. Why would anyone want to make the leaders and policies that they themselves favour more vulnerable to removal? Indeed, let me first ask, why would anyone want to replace bad leaders and policies at all? That question may seem absurd, but, but perhaps it is absurd only from the perspective of a civilization that takes progress for granted. If we did not expect progress, why should we expect the new leader or policy, chosen by whatever method, to be any better than the old? On the contrary, we should then expect any changes on average to do as much harm as good. And then the precautionary principle advises, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. There is a closed loop of ideas here. On the assumption that knowledge is not going to grow, the precautionary principle is true. And on the assumption that the precautionary principle is true, we cannot afford to allow knowledge to grow. Unless a society is expecting its own unless a society is expecting its own future choices to be better than its present ones, it will strive to make its present policies and institutions as immutable as possible. Therefore, Popper's criterion can only be met by societies that expect their knowledge to grow and to grow unpredictably. And further, they are expecting that if it did grow, that it would help. This expectation is what I call optimism, and I can state it in its most general form thus. The principle of optimism. All evils are caused by insufficient knowledge. Optimism is, in the first instance, a way of explaining failure, not prophesying success. It says that there is no fundamental barrier, no law of nature or supernatural decree preventing progress. Whenever we try to improve things and fail, it is not because the spiteful or unfathomably benevolent gods are thwarting us or punishing us for trying, or because we have reached the limit on the capacity of reason to make improvements, or because it is best that we fail, but always because we did not know enough in time. But optimism is also a stance towards the future, because nearly all failures and nearly all successes are yet to come. And so just to, just to pause on that, so the principle of optimism here, all evils are due to insufficient knowledge. So if we pause and reflect on that for a moment, if you, if you were to re reject that notion, reject the idea that all evils are due to insufficient knowledge, then you think some evil is not due to insufficient knowledge and can't be addressed by addressing the lack of knowledge, then perhaps you think the evil can be addressed in some other way something other than knowledge creation, something other than persuasion, in other words, force or coercion. As for knowledge, a lack of it is due to a lack of creativity. Now this is intimately tied up therefore with people, because people are 
the things that create explanatory knowledge. So to reject the solution uh, so to reject the solution to evil as being about creating knowledge is about rejecting the capacity or ability of people to do something about it using creativity. And so this rejection of the potential of people, this anti-humanism is at the heart of pessimism. Back to the book. Optimism follows from the explicability of the physical world, as I explained in chapter three. If something is permitted by the laws of physics, then the only thing that, then the only thing that can prevent it from being technologically possible is not knowing how. Optimism also assumes that none of the prohibitions imposed by the laws of physics are necessarily evils. So for instance, the lack of the impossible knowledge of prophecy is not an insuperable obstacle to progress, nor are insoluble mathematical problems, as I explained in chapter eight. Let's pause there, that's an important point. There's lots of things, well, at the moment we don't know many of them, but there are, but there are provably unknowable things or unprovable things, we should say, unprovable things in mathematics. And the overwhelming majority of statements in mathematics are unprovable. Very well. Does this mean there is a limit on, there's a limit on progress because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem? No, because all those things that are unable to be proved are inherently uninteresting as well. They don't actually help us to solve any problems here in physical reality. So back to the book. That means that in the long run, there are no insuperable evils. And in the short run, the only insuperable evils are parochial ones. There can be no such thing as a disease for which it is impossible to discover a cure other than certain types of brain damage, those that have dissipated the knowledge that constitutes the patient's personality. For a sick person is a physical object and the task of transforming this object into the same person in good health is one that no law of physics rules out. Hence, there is a way of achieving such a transformation, that is to say, a cure. It is only a matter of knowing how. If we do not for the moment know how to eliminate a particular evil, or we know in theory but we do not yet have enough time or resources, i.e. wealth, then even so it is universally true that either the laws of physics forbid eliminating it in a given time with the available resources, or there is a way of eliminating it in the time and with those resources. Okay, just pause there as well. Um, David mentions the word universal there and and indeed the, the principle of optimism Optimism itself is a universal claim. The all evils are due to insufficient knowledge. Note also that this principle of optimism is logically equivalent to problems are soluble because evil is just a certain kind of problem. A solution, a solution is knowledge put into practice. Problems are inevitable can also be interpreted as an optimistic view of reality because problems are not all about suffering and they're not all evils. The the suffering type problems and the evil type problems, they're just special cases of problems in general. Problems can be interesting and fun. And indeed in the, in the distant future, we will have solved suffering. We will have solved suffering. Long time in the future, sure, but suffering is a certain kind of pain and inability to um, persistently solve the same problem over and over again. And that, that might cause you unhappiness, that can cause you suffering. So problems can indeed be fun. If problems were not inevitable, then we'd have no problems. And that, as David says elsewhere, is another word for death, the unproblematic state, which paradoxically would be a problem, of course. So logically speaking, there's no escape from this problems are inevitable. It's a good thing that the world happens to be this way. But 
problems are inevitable is also an appeal to recognize we cannot prevent problems either. The precautionary principle is a terrible idea. The idea of the precautionary principle is that we should be careful with, for example, technology, careful with progress, careful with doing too much because we might upset something and cause destruction. But doing nothing is guaranteed to cause destruction. We cannot know about the problems we're yet to encounter, and the only guard against them is to make rapid progress. To create lots more knowledge and lots more wealth now. That won't make the problems go away, or protect us from them in any sort of perfect sense. It will just make us more able to solve them when we do encounter them. All evils are due to lack of knowledge is a universal claim. So it says something fundamental about reality, about our circumstance. As a fundamental principle, it means it touches just about every single facet of our lives. At the heart of the, some of the worst purported solutions to the big problems that we're encountering right now, rather than calling them uh, bad solutions, we might just call them evasions. Uh, at the heart of all of these is some kind of pessimism. So, for example, people who think that people who don't like the particular leaders that are in power right now, they want to fiddle with democracy in order to ensure that such a leader can't be elected in the future at some point. Well, they want to reduce democracy in some way. That would lead to a kind of totalitarianism, an appeal to an appeal for undemocratic institutions where it's more and more difficult to remove certain rulers or rules indeed. Pessimism about trade and how we shouldn't have a global market. Pessimism about people and how we need to value the environment over living, sentient people. Pessimism about children leading to us to want to control them and to coerce them and have compulsory schooling. Pessimism about compassion and kindness, meaning that we need to enforce or meaning that we need to steal from people because they won't freely give away their money. There's a whole raft of terrible ideas, all of which at their heart, at their root, have pessimism motivating them in some way. Pessimism typically about people. David then goes on to um, speak about how death is just another problem. Um, you, um, everyone should be following the work of Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey de Grey, who works on ex life extension science. Um, and he would hope to um, hope to cure death. Okay, and he regards there as being only a finite number of different problems to solve in order to cure death. And David talks about that here. Um, and I'll just read a small section of what David has written here. And he writes, Sometimes immortality, in this sense, is even regarded as undesirable. For instance, there are arguments from overpopulation, but those are examples of the Malthusian prophetic fallacy. What each individual surviving person would need to survive at present-day standards of living is easily calculated. What knowledge that person would contribute to the solution of the resulting problems is unknowable. There are also arguments about the stultification of society caused by the entrenchment of old people in positions of power. But the traditions of criticism in our society are already well adapted to solving that sort of problem. Even today, it is common in Western countries for powerful politicians or business executives to be removed from office while still in good health. Now, um, also on this topic of immortality and curing death, um, Martin Rees very recently wrote an article, and I'll link to that article, about how we shouldn't hope for immortality, that it's kind of an immoral thing, it's bad. Um, 
It's a strange impulse, as David observed, that people would hope for their own death, um, even while trying to avoid it. It's a, it's a strange philosophy. Go back to the book, and here is the parable of optimism. There's a traditional optimistic story that runs as follows. A hero is a prisoner who has been sentenced to death by a tyrannical king, but gains reprieve by promising to teach the king's favorite horse to talk within a year. That night, a fellow prisoner asks what possessed him to make such a bargain. A lot can happen in a year. The horse might die. The king might die. I might die. Or the horse might talk. The prisoner understands that while his immediate problems have to do with prison bars and the king and his horse, ultimately, the evil he faces is caused by insufficient knowledge. That makes him an optimist. He knows that if progress is to be made, some of the opportunities and some of the discoveries will be inconceivable in advance. Progress cannot take place at all unless someone is open to and prepares for those inconceivable possibilities. The prisoner may or may not discover a way of teaching the horse to talk, but he may discover something else. He may persuade the king to repeal the law that he had broken. He may learn a convincing conjuring trick in which the horse would seem to talk. He may escape. He may think of an achievable task that would please the king even more than making the horse talk. The list is infinite. Even if every such possibility is unlikely, it takes only one of them to be realised for the whole problem to be solved. But if our prisoner is going to escape by creating a new idea, he cannot possibly know that idea today. And therefore he cannot let the assumption that it will never exist condition his planning. Optimism implies all the other necessary conditions for knowledge to grow, and for knowledge creating civilizations to last, and hence for the beginning of infinity. We have, as Popper put it, a duty to be optimistic, in general, and about civilization in particular. One can argue that saving civilization will be difficult. That does not mean there is a low probability of solving the associated problems. When we say that a mathematical problem is hard to solve, we do not mean that it is unlikely to be solved. All sorts of factors determine whether mathematicians even address a problem, and with what effort. If an easy problem is not deemed to be interesting or useful, they might leave it unsolved indefinitely, while hard problems are solved all the time. Usually the hardness of a problem is one of the very factors that cause it to be solved. Thus, President John F. Kennedy said in 1962 in a celebrated example of an optimistic approach to the unknown, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Kennedy did not mean that the moon project, being hard, was unlikely to succeed. On the contrary, he believed that it would. What he meant by a hard task was one that depends on facing the unknown. And the intuitive fact to which he was appealing was that although such hardness is always a negative factor when choosing among means to pursue when choosing among means to pursue an objective, when choosing the objective itself, it can be a positive one. Because we want to engage with projects that will involve creating new knowledge, and an optimist expects the creation of knowledge to constitute progress, including its unforeseeable consequences. Thus, Kennedy remarked that the Moon Project would require a vehicle made of new metal alloys, some of which have not been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food and survival. These were the known problems, which would require as yet unknown knowledge. That this was on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body referred to the unknown problems that made the probabilities and the outcomes profoundly unknowable. Yet none of that prevented rational people from forming the expectation that the mission could succeed. This expectation was not a judgment of probability. Until far into the project, no one could predict that because it depended on solutions not yet discovered to problems not yet known. 
when people were being persuaded to work on the project and to vote for it and so on, they were being persuaded that our being confined to one planet was an evil, that exploring the universe was a good, and that the Earth's gravitational field was not a barrier, but merely a problem, and that overcoming it and all the other problems involved in the project was only a matter of knowing how, and that the nature of the problems made that moment the right one to try and solve them. Probabilities and prophecies were not needed in that argument. Pessimism has been endemic in almost every society throughout history. It has taken the form of the precautionary principle and of who should rule political philosophies and all sorts of other demands for prophecy and of despair and the power of creativity and of the misinterpretation of problems as insuperable barriers. Yet there have always been a few individuals who see obstacles as problems and see problems as soluble. And so, very occasionally, there have been places and moments when there was briefly an end to pessimism. As far as I know, no historian has investigated the history of optimism, but my guess is that whenever it has emerged in a civilization, there has been a mini-enlightenment, a tradition of criticism, resulting in an efflorescence of many of the patterns of human progress with which we are familiar, such as art, literature, philosophy, science, technology, and the institutions of an open society. The end of pessimism is potentially a beginning of infinity, yet I also guess that in every case, with the single tremendous exception, so far, of our enlightenment, this process was soon brought to an end and the reign of pessimism was restored. Now there is a lengthy exposition of, a, of some of the bright points where optimism has begun in history and then unfortunately failed. So there was the mini-enlightenment during Athens, and Athens um, had many great philosophers, many great thinkers, made lots of progress in politics and ethics and so forth, but eventually was overrun by Sparta in a war. And so, so pessimism ended up winning there. And then there was another short-lived enlightenment, as David refers to it, in Florence in the, in the early Renaissance. This was funded and nurtured by the Medici family but eventually a charismatic monk, Giolamo Savonarola, began to preach apocalyptic sermons against humanism and the Medicis and this great optimistic philosophy. And so the dogma of religion ended up violently suppressing all of the, all of the excellent social and indeed economic progress that had happened. And so that was the end of optimism there in Florence for a time. Although as David says, that that nascent spark of optimism, what fueled the fire of the, um, of the true enlightenment eventually. There have also been other mini enlightenments. One happened during the Islamic golden age from 965 to 1039. So I, I encourage everyone, of course, to go to the book and to read um, the history of optimism there. And if there are any budding historians out there, or anyone's wanting to write an essay about the history of optimism, that would be a very interesting, as of yet, largely uncharted part of our knowledge of the way in which societies can become stable over time, despite rapid change. We don't know the conditions about what it takes in order for a society like ours to remain peaceful, coherent, uh, and yet able to withstand rapid change. So I'll just read the last part of this chapter now. The inhabitants of Florence in 1494, or Athens in 404 BC, could be forgiven for concluding that optimism isn't just factually, that, that optimism just isn't factually true. 
For they knew nothing of such things as the reach of explanations, or the power of science, or even the laws of nature as we understand them, let alone the moral and technological progress that was to follow when the Enlightenment got underway. At the moment of defeat, it must have seemed at least plausible to the formerly optimistic Athenians that the Spartans might be right, and to the formerly optimistic Florentines that Savonarola might be. Like every other destruction of optimism, whether in a whole civilization or in a single individual, there must have been unspeakable catastrophes for those that had dared to expect progress. But we should feel more than sympathy for those people. We should take it personally. For if any of those earlier experiments in optimism had succeeded, our species would be exploring the stars by now, and you and I would be immortal. So that's where David ends the chapter. What a powerful way to end the chapter. And so this is why uh, many of us do get excited about people who push pessimistic theories today. We take it personally, as we should take the failures of optimism in the past. When people talk about reducing progress, curbing freedoms, then this is a dangerous path. We want immortality. We want to go to the stars. We want people to be free to pursue the solutions to their own problems. And this can only happen in a condition of optimism and freedom. But unfortunately, right now, our thought leaders, I can't stand that term, but our, the thought leaders of the, of the West, rather many of them, from politicians through to public intellectuals, are almost universally pessimists. They regret the progress that people have made. They regard the activities of people with great suspicion. They care about inanimate things more than they care about creative people. At least this is the philosophy, this pessimistic philosophy underpinning the policies that they'd like to impose upon society. So let me finish this epic three-part series on chapter nine, Optimism from the Beginning of Infinity, um, by going back to the beginning where I started speaking not only about uh, Martin Rees, but also uh, Nick Bostrom, because I think Nick Bostrom perhaps has even more influence over many public intellectuals globally than what Rees has. Um, he is, he does seem to be the philosopher's philosopher. And this is, and he is the, the go-to person, for example, for Sam Harris when it comes to any number of different opinions. And these opinions, people think philosophy doesn't have an impact, but philosophy infiltrates academia. Academia informs politics. Politics reflects the media and then the media inform the public. So it's not like these ideas are inert ivory tower discussions. They filter down. They filter down and become the zeitgeist. Okay, so I'll just finish. It's a fun, fun little um, uh, thought experiment. I just want to see if we can figure out what's wrong with it. Bostrom promotes something called the doomsday hypothesis. Now he didn't come up with this, but he promotes it. So let's read through the doomsday hypothesis, what the doomsday hypothesis is all about. And it's about how we should expect, we should expect that we will go extinct sooner rather than later. It's a probability-based argument. It's a Bayesian argument. So let's see how it goes. So this is the way Bostrom puts it. And you can find it at um, 
uh, on his website, but uh, I'll put the link up there as well. Um, here we go. Bostrom's version of the Doomsday Hypothesis. Step one, imagine a universe that consists of 100 cubicles. In each cubicle there is one person. 90 of the cubicles are painted blue on the outside and the other 10 are painted red. Each person is asked to guess whether she is in a blue or a red cubicle. Well suppose you find yourself in one of these cubicles. What colour would you think it? What colour would you think it is? Well, since 90% of people are in blue cubicles and you don't have any other relevant information, it seems you could you should think with 90% probability you're in a blue cubicle. So let's call this idea that you should reason as if you were a that you should reason as if you were a random sample from the set of all observers, the self-sampling assumption. Okay. Suppose everyone accepts the self-sampling assumption and everyone has to and everyone has to bet on whether they are in a blue, and everyone has to bet on whether they are in a blue or a red cubicle. Then 90% of all persons will win their bets and 10% will lose. Suppose on the other hand that the self-sampling assumption is rejected and people think that one is no more likely to be in a blue cubicle, one is no more likely to be in a blue or a red cubicle, so they bet by flipping a coin. Then on average, 50% of the people will win and 50% of the people will lose. The rational thing to do seems to be to accept the self-sampling assumption, at least in this case. Alright, so yes, in this case. Okay, the next step, as Bostrom puts it, is this. Let's modify the thought experiment a bit. Oh, I, sh I should probably say I'm not reading verbatim the way that Bostrom has put this. Um, uh, Bostrom has an idiosyncratic way of writing that's a bit jarring to me, and so I'm just putting it into my own words, more or less. <clears throat> Okay, so Bostrom goes on to say, now we're modifying the thought experiment. We still have a hundred cubicles, but this time they're not painted blue or red. Instead, they're numbered from one through to a hundred. The numbers are painted on the outside. Then a fair coin is tossed, okay, by God, let's say. If the coin falls heads, one person is created in each cubicle. If the coin falls tails, then the persons are only created in cubicles one through ten. Okay, so we've got this finite number of cubicles, 1 to 100, God flips a coin, if it's heads, then there's one person that fills in each cubicle from 1 to 100, but it falls tails, then only cubicles 1 through 10 are filled with people. Okay. Now you happen to find yourself in one of the cubicles and you're asked to guess whether there are 10 or 100 people. Well, at the moment we can't tell. Okay, it's random, we're on the inside of the cubicle. Now the key is... Um, before you open the door, because you're going to be allowed to open the door in a minute, that it's kind of a 50-50, it's kind of a 50-50 whether or not there's been 10 people created by God or 100 people created by God. We don't know. Okay, and then, then we get into the Bayesian stuff here. So let's say you, let's say you want to apply Bayesian statistics to this. Then what you can do is you can say, well, conditional on heads having been tossed, let's say you find out that heads have been tossed, then the probability of your cubicle bet being between number one and number 10 is going to be one in 10, okay? Because there's actually a hundred cubicles. However, if the coin was tossed and it fell tails, then tails was the condition under which only one through to 10 was filled. And if one through to 10 was filled, then the probability that you're in one to 10 is identically one. Okay, now, next step. Suppose you open the door and discover you're in cubicle number seven. And again, you're asked, how did the coin fall? Well, the thing is here, now we, now we use Bayesian statistics. Now we have additional information. We can now look at all the doors, okay, there are, it's one through to a hundred, but you're in number seven. 
So what is the chance that when God flipped the coin, it was such that only one through to 10 was filled rather than one through 100? Well, in fact, the probability is much higher that it's one through to 10 than what you might otherwise think. It's no longer 50-50. It's certainly not 50-50. As Bostrom says, the probability is greater than 50% that it fell tails. For what you are observing is given a higher probability on that hypothesis than the hypothesis that it fell heads. The precise new probability of tails can be calculated using Bayes' theorem. It is approximately 91%. So after finding that, you are in cubicle number seven, you should think with 91% probability that there are only 10 people. Very well. Step three. <clears throat> The last step is to transpose these results to our actual situation here on Earth. Well, is it? <laughs> is it? Are we going to be able to use that thought experiment, what we've just thought about there, this completely abstract idea where people thinking and doing stuff cannot possibly change the probabilities? Are we going to be able to apply that to our situation on Earth? Okay, so here's the see if you can spot the error kind of thing. Let's formulate the following two rival hypotheses. Doom early, as he calls it. Doom early is that humankind goes extinct in the next century and the total number of humans will have, that will have existed is, say, 200 billion. Or another hypothesis, doom late. Doom late is the idea that humankind survives the next century and goes on to colonize the galaxy. The total number of humans is, say, 200 trillion. So notice there, he's capped the number of humans at 200 trillion. Why? Well, he's just picked an arbitrary number out of thin air, okay? Um, he could pick anything. Importantly, he could pick infinity. What if he had a picked infinity? Well, he doesn't do that. There's an important reason why he doesn't do that, because it doesn't suit his purpose. But let's continue. To simplify the exposition, we will consider only these hypotheses. Using a more fine-grained partition of the hypothesis space doesn't change the principle, though it would give more exact numerical values. Doom early corresponds to there being only 10 people in the thought experiment of step two. Doom late corresponds to there being 100 people. Correspondingly, corresponding to the numbers on the cubicles, we now have the birth ranks of human beings, their positions in the human race. Corresponding to the prior probability, 50% of the coin falling heads or tails, we now have some probability of doom soon or doom late. This will be based on our ordinary empirical estimates of the potential threats to human survival. Okay, so. The whole point here is that we know that we are very early on in human evolution. Now, humans have only been around for, what, a million years, something like that, okay, homo sapiens. It might be a bit more than that. I think I saw a number recently that might have doubled that. Not sure. Anyway, it's early on in our evolution. There has been only about 200 billion people as of the end of, let's say, this century, something like that. Presumably, there's going to be uh, up to 200 trillion more, Bostrom says. The fact that we know we're early on in the history of humanity means that we're kind of like the people that were in the cubicles labelled 1 to 10. We should expect that knowing that we are in, you know, that we are early on, that we are well within that 1 through to 10 period or the 1 up to our 200 billion people, we should not expect to be in the 200 trillion. The, the, the number of people is 200 trillion. It's more like 200 billion on this hypothesis. Oh, what's wrong with this? Well, it casts people once again as inert victims. Nothing they can choose to do can change the probabilities on this view. 
That is simply false. It ignores what people are. This is at the heart, the problem with so many of Bostrom's apocalyptic fears. He calculates, always with high probability, how people will come to an end by ignoring anything people might do to stop it. He downplays, if not completely ignores, creativity. Where he does try to account for creativity, such as in his urn with the black balls, there's nothing anyone can do about the black ball. No knowledge. Nothing pulled from his urn after the black ball can possibly do anything about the black ball. Nothing can be done if you are one of the first 200 billion people to prevent the end of humanity. Why we're also capping the maximum number of people at 200 trillion, we don't know. Why doesn't it go on forever? How do you know that it doesn't go on forever? Why are we like a fixed number of people in cubicles? Why is that our situation? How are these two things analogous to one another? Can we use probability on infinite sets if there's, an inf if there's literally an infinite amount of time before us? So Bostrom likes the black ball idea, the idea that there is an insoluble problem. In other words, a physical impossibility because we know problems are soluble. Now, to make his position as strong as possible, he doesn't quite think that there are insoluble problems, but he might think that the solution might not come in time. That's fine. But of course, I return full circle to my original criticism of Bostrom's overarching philosophy, which is that he's a philosophical pessimist. He, he's, he always falls back on this idea, or frequently falls back on this idea, that we just won't solve the problem in time. And that's pessimism. Yes, fine, but the, the way we can almost guarantee of not solving the problem in time is to enact the exact solution that he wants, which is to slow down progress. Or to fail, if we fail to make progress as fast as possible, then yes, we're more likely to guarantee our inability to solve problems. Optimists don't argue for slowing down progress. It's the pessimists like Bostrom that do. And it could very well be a self-fulfilling prophecy if they succeed. Bostrom and Rees and others are saying some forms of progress are dangerous, that we should slow down. And if we slow down, but if we slow down, if we good people slow down, then this doesn't necessarily slow down the bad people, the bad people that are trying to use technology for evil. And if we're convinced that we should slow down, and we do slow down, then the evil people get the destructive technology before we find a solution to it. In other words, the pessimists end up proving themselves correct, but none of them are left to verify that they were correct. That's the problem. So that is the doomsday scenario. We should want to avoid it. And to do that, we need to make faster progress. And we need to create the conditions under which we can make that faster progress. And that requires far more optimism. Thanks for bearing with me for all these many hours for Chapter 9, Optimism. Eventually, I'll get to Chapter 10. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.